Today I'll be reading from Romans 2, verse 25 till 3, verse 8. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true through everyone who are a liar, as it was written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why do not evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Thank you, Amber, for reading today's passage. If I had a Starbucks Jerusalem mug, you would see that it's graced by the dove of peace. Of course, in recent weeks, we have seen the opposite only conflict. Carrying the sign of peace is not enough. Israelis and Palestinians long for the reality that it represents, shalom. A burning question in the land occupied by Israeli Jews and Palestinian Arabs is the question of rights to the land. Can Jews and Arabs coexist in the same region? Can Jerusalem be the capital of Israel and the capital of Palestine at the same time? And then to take it to another level, what does it even mean to be an Israeli Jew? Is one a Jew by birth? Is it necessary to be an Orthodox Jew and follow the letter of the law? Or can one be a moderate or even secular Jew? Half of the Jews in Israel are secular Jews. Forty percent of them are atheists, are Jewish atheists still Jews? Is it possible to be a Jew outwardly but not inwardly? Our text today talks about outward signs and inward realities. What are some signs familiar to us? Well, a wedding ring symbolizes the oneness of marriage. If I don't wear my ring, my wife will soon ask me why. If I am wearing my ring, does it mean I am faithful to my wife? I have a Canadian passport. It tells border officials, I'm a Canadian citizen. If I carry a Canadian passport, does it mean I am loyal to Canada? Does it mean I'm a good citizen? Outward signs certainly indicate something, but they do not reveal the strength of our heart commitments or our heart condition. Our text today, it speaks specifically to the value of being a Jew. So at first glance, if we are non-Jews, we might think it has little to do with us. 
But if we look more closely, we will find something very foundational for all of us. The text, it just unveils what is at the heart of being a follower of Jesus. Some background is needed to understand these verses. Last week, Pastor Willie talked about the value of the law. How does Paul use the word law? Does he refer to provincial law, federal law, natural law, biblical law? For Paul, law is the law of Moses, the body of commandments given by God to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai through Moses. The Hebrew word for the first five books of the Old Testament is Torah. The Torah was Israel's source of wisdom, honor, and life. It was the pledge of God's love to the Jewish people. If the law was the major distinctive of the Jews, a close second was circumcision. Now, circumcision may seem unusual to us, even bizarre, but it was the identity marker of true Jewishness. It was their passport to salvation, their kingdom of heaven citizenship card, their protective shield at judgment. Since the time of Abraham, it had served as the mark of their bonded relationship with God. And so many Jews believed that all circumcised Jews would get a pass at the last judgment. Now listen to Paul's words. Verse 25, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Paul argues that circumcision is a sign of bonded relationship with God, but not the essence of it. Circumcision is of value for salvation only if Jews obey the law of Moses perfectly. If they disobey the law, they are counted before God as uncircumcised. In other words, they are outside of the covenant people and destined for judgment. Possessing the law of Moses and having the outward sign of circumcision would not save them. First point, outward signs do not save. Here's an analogy. Many years ago, I studied the driving laws of British Columbia. I passed the written test and the driver's test. I was issued a driver's license. If I have a driver's license today, does it mean I'm a good driver? My youngest daughter was issued a driver's license and N for novice. Then in short succession, she had two minor car accidents with our family van. A few weeks later, she was speeding through a school zone. When the police officer pulled her over, he noticed she had a van full of friends. Not allowed if you're a novice. She received a heavy fine. As her father, I thought we should have a father-to-daughter conversation about driving safety. So we went to White Spot together to share a meal and talk. When I addressed driving habits, her driving habits, she looked at me and asked, do you think you've been a good example, Dad? That was a rhetorical question. The fact that my daughter had a driver's license did not mean she was a good driver. The fact that I had a driver's license and knew all the driving laws did not mean I was a good example to her. 
Knowing the driving laws and carrying a driver's license does not save us from the judgment of police officers if we're breaking the law. In a similar manner, possessing the law of Moses and bearing the sign of circumcision would not save a Jew at judgment day. What would? Paul continues in verse 26. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. The uncircumcised person is a non-Jew in these verses, a Gentile. If a non-Jew keeps the moral law, that person will be counted as a member of the covenant people. And those non-Jews who keep the law will stand at the judgment and condemn the Jews who had the advantages of the law and circumcision. Based on their good deeds and their zeal for what they know to be true, these non-Jews will surpass the Jews despite their limited advantage. This is similar to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus is in conversation with the scribes and Pharisees who consider themselves to be model Jews, bearers of the sign of circumcision and carrying the law of Moses. Their hardness of heart toward Jesus, however, is evident. So Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they re- repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The men of Nineveh had humbled themselves before God and the word they received through Jonah. The scribes and Pharisees had not humbled themselves before Jesus, the living word the fulfillment of the law and prophets, and would thus stand judged. So in summary, circumcision would be of value for salvation for the Jews if they could obey the law perfectly. But here's the problem. No one can. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. And salvation is never granted based on a cut of the skin or devotion to a book. Even with Abraham, the father of all who believe, Paul will will argue in Romans chapter 4, he was counted righteous based on his faith in God, his trust relationship. His circumcision was just a seal of that righteousness. So here's the important point for us. Habits and practices do not save. An outward sign is never a substitute for true relationship. Signs are of value only when there is an inner reality to which they correspond. What is one of the first signs of Christian commitment? Baptism. We encourage baptism. It is a step of obedience blessed by God, but it only has value if it reflects an inner reality. It is never just about the outward act, but rather about what it symbolizes, a heart surrendered to God, death to self, and resurrection to new life 
in the Spirit. We could go on. Being a follower of Jesus is not just about the external. It's not just about attending services, carrying a Bible, uh, signing a confessional statement, and participating in the Lord's Supper. All of these external signs must correspond to an inner reality, a heart commitment to God and to his people. An outward sign is never a substitute for true relationship. In verses 28 and 29, Paul explains why this is true. Verse 28, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit and not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Paul argues that true Jewishness and genuine circumcision are not ethnic or physical matters. True Jewishness and true circumcision are matters of the heart. Circumcision is inner heart transformation by the Spirit that results in a life of obedience to God. Paul will write about this new reality at length in chapter 7 and 8. Allow me to cite just one verse, Romans chapter 7, verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Did you see that? The follower of Jesus serves God by the Spirit. In Romans chapter 8, Paul will argue that God has done in Jesus by the Spirit what the law could never do. He has made it possible for us to, to die to sin and live in a new way. By the Spirit, the human heart is transformed. The law of God is actually written on, the, on our hearts and the desire to obey is granted. This work of the Spirit, Paul says, receives praise from God. This is beautiful in God's eyes. The law and circumcision could not serve as the key identity markers of Jews or Gentiles. They had no power to transform Jews or Gentiles. Their identity had to be grounded in a genuine relationship of love with Jesus, marked by an inner work of the Spirit. I believe this has something to say to us today. We live in a world which says much about identity markers. In our world, we're encouraged to look within ourselves to find our, our true identity. Our identity is supposedly tied to our ethnicity, race, gender, uh, sexual orientation, social media presence, professional success, educational achievements, and on and on. We feel we are always trying to shore up our identity, trying to make it more secure and noteworthy. As a young adult, I remember trying to establish my identity based on the clothes I wore, the friends I had, the citizenship card I carried while studying abroad, the motorcycle I rode, a Kawasaki 900, as if that were something. These outward signs of identity were fragile and unstable. Clothes go out of style. <laughs> Friends can be lost. Motorcycles crash. These markers did not address the core of who I was. Now, as followers of Jesus, we have an inner identity which is profound, unchanging, and enduring. 
If we are followers of Jesus, then our core identity is found in God Himself. We're created in His image. We are His children. We are loved and accepted by Him. We are citizens of His kingdom. We are being transformed into the likeness of Jesus. This never crashes. It never gets canceled. These unshakable realities, no matter what the time or circumstance, are for all of us who follow Jesus. And all means all. We are all called to rest secure in our identity in Jesus, marked by the Spirit. After arguing that it's only by the Spirit of God that one becomes a true Jew, and experiences true circumcision, Paul can already hear the questions of his readers. After all, by the time he writes Romans, he's been teaching the gospel of Jesus in Jewish synagogues for 20 years. So he raises the logical follow-up question of his hearers. This is in chapter 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? If everything is about an inner reality, then Jews and Gentiles are on the same playing field. The playing field is level for them before God. Is there any value in being a Jew? We expect the answer, none. Paul's answer surprises us. Chapter 3, verse 2. Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Paul says the Jews have enjoyed great saving advantages. This verse anticipates what he's going to say later in chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. In addition to the oracles of God, they received adoption as God's people, the bonded relationship of the covenant, the giving of the law, worship, promises of salvation, the patriarchs, and Jesus the Messiah. They had received so much. But let's focus on chapter 3, verse 2 for now. Paul says the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The oracles of God are the divine words preserved and handed down by earlier generations. These very words of God are the disclosures of God's will and his promises. God's unveiling did not happen just anywhere. As Moses exclaims in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 8, And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? God revealed his will to the Jews and promised to bless the nations through them. Now, in 3.2, notice that God did not just give them his words, but that he entrusted them to him. To be entrusted means more than being a recipient of divine words. It means more than preservation and transmission of these words. It means to be a steward of God's words. It calls for faith in the God who spoke these words and then faithfulness to those words. The entrustment of the oracles of God was not a possession to be hoarded, but a gift to be shared. Israel was to be a water channel, not a water dam. And it is precisely at this point that the Jews failed. They not only hoarded the word of God for themselves, but proved their unbelief by their unfaithfulness to the very words of God. They were not good stewards. We 
as followers of Jesus, we are all called to steward the gospel entrusted to us. Do we see ourselves as stewards of God's promises today? Paul was a steward of the gospel. He says in Romans chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He believed that he owed the gospel to all people in Rome, even if it challenged the dominant narratives of his day, like emperor worship, empire expansion, and moral fluidity. Do we see ourselves as stewards of the gospel today? What is the dominant gospel of our day? We talked about this a few months back. Perhaps the most pervasive gospel in North American society is the secular humanism gospel. Most people live by it with a street-level faith in its truth without thinking about it a lot. The first premise of this gospel is that as we progress in time, we will advance scientifically, technologically, politically, and morally. A free and prosperous future is before us. We can have the kingdom as we desire it without King Jesus. God is unnecessary. The second premise is that this utopia, a perfect imaginary wonderland, it awaits us. And a fundamental belief in this gospel is that with the right conditions and influences, we enlightened humans are perfectible. And we can realize our full potential. All we need is more education, more information, and encouragement. Now, this secular human gospel is fracturing. The gaps between its promises and reality are widening. Our technological and scientific knowledge has increased. But on the social front, we see a return of tribalism a growth in economic disparity, and a growing distance between elites and common people. In our private worlds, we observe anxiety and mental health disorders, epidemic loneliness despite hyperconnection, and the persistence of discrimination, bigotry, and hatred, addiction to drugs, to food, to technology, sex, and gambling. They're widespread. As North America tries to push toward cultural, moral, and political renewal without God, their brokenness and sin is becoming more and more exposed. We find we do not have the strength to fight for the land we'd like to take. We're too weak, fractured. We must admit we are all influenced by this gospel, no matter what our faith conviction is, because it's just so pervasive in our culture. And this is one of the reasons why Romans 1 through 3, where Paul describes the human condition, describes human depravity, is so difficult for us to hear. It's too painful. We want a more positive message. But the truth is that everything on earth is broken. And one of the beautiful realities of the gospel of Jesus is that it actually enables us to face life as it is with all of its suffering and brokenness. 
We will not put it all together in this life. We will all fail. We are all sinners. All means all. But out of love, God has done something for all of us in Jesus. So will we steward the gospel entrusted to us? Will we allow it to transform us? Will we share the gospel out of love for those around us? We owe people the gospel. It continues to be the power of God for salvation for all who believe. It's not enough just to have the outward signs, baptism, a Bible, church membership. The question really is, do we have a trust relationship with God, the God of the Bible? Obviously, Israel was not faithful with the oracles of God, what God had entrusted to them. In verse 3, the diatribe continues. Paul engages an imaginary opponent. Verse 3, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. If Israel was unfaithful to God's words, does this mean God is no longer true and faithful? By no means, Paul says. Read, say what? Impossible, absurd. Even though the Jews were faithless and refused to obey God's words, God remained faithful to them. Their unbelief did not render inactive God's faithfulness. His character is not determined by human failure. As Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God's faithfulness is sure. It's undeniable, unshakable truth. Whereas Israel is unfaithful, God is faithful. Whereas all people lie, God is always true to his promises. Precisely because he's not like us, he can help us. We are all called to trust God's word. In verse 4, Paul quotes from Psalm 51 verse 4. This quotation is from David's psalm where he, he bears his soul before God. He's been unfaithful to God. He has betrayed one of his warriors. He has committed adultery with Bathsheba. And he's tried to cover up his sin. After a long delay, and only in response to a personal divine word through the prophet Nathan, he finally confesses and repents. In Psalm 51, David declares God to be justified in his righteous judgment of his sins of covetousness, adultery, and murder. Whereas David is unjust, God is just. In Romans 3, Paul's imaginary opponent embarks on the absurd. The diatribe, it continues in verses 5 through 8. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. The imaginary opponent asks, if, if our sinning, like David's, serves to display God's righteousness, 
Why not keep on sinning? Should we not be immune to God's judgment? Is he not unjust to exercise his wrath, seeing we're actually unable to keep his law anyways, due to our undeniable depravity? Does not our evil reveal God's goodness? It's another way of saying, does the end justify the means? What a remarkable rationalization. Again, Paul says, by no means. Read, say what? Ludicrous. Paul responds, if that were true, how could God judge anyone, Jew or Gentile? Paul uses an expression, I speak in a human way, to say, I apologize for what I'm writing here, because if it's taken at face value, it's blasphemous. It is absolutely absurd. We um, humans like to judge God. We argue whether God exists or whether God is good or why God allows this or that to happen. And sometimes we even curse and deny God. We can even argue that we should do evil in order to glorify God. The theologian Karl Barth wrote these words after the Second World War. Evil remains evil in spite of the good which God may bring out of it. The nonsense of history remains nonsense in spite of the sense which is in it from God. Infidelity is infidelity in spite of the faithfulness of God by which it is not permitted to wander out of the way. Even if God is good and patient and kind and merciful and faithful, sin is still sin. And in the age to come, the one who is unlike us will judge us based on his truth and justice. Paul's conclusion in verse 8 is crystal clear. If his readers are that twisted in their thinking that they should do evil to reveal God's goodness, their condemnation is just. End of argument. If they think they should commit adultery and murder in order to display God's righteousness, they truly have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. So, how does this apply to us? Paul highlights two things we have received as followers of Jesus. The gift of the Spirit and the living oracles of God. Will we value the spirit and word entrusted to us? God has not left us alone. First, he has spoken. The gospel is so beautiful because in the gospel we have the very words of God. In times past, God spoke through the prophets, but God has spoken most clearly, fully, wonderfully in Jesus God has spoken through his son, the living word, and this has changed everything. God, by his immeasurable grace toward a humanity that calls good evil and evil good, has reached out to us in love, in mercy, while we were going the other way. In his perfect love and perfect justice, he opened the way for us to know him through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. God is so gracious, so loving, so kind. He has spoken so that we might know him and be with him. And then if we have been drawn into the story of Jesus by the Father, if we have surrendered our lives to Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. God has come to take up residence in us, the Spirit. 
Spirit of the living God who breathed the Scriptures through the apostles and prophets abides in us, and you can't get any closer than in. And the Spirit writes God's law on our hearts. He speaks to us, guides us, teaches us, convicts us, inspires us, empowers us. We have the resources of heaven within us, the Spirit and the Word. We have been born by the Spirit of God to a living hope, which fills us with joy in this moment and assures us of our salvation and propels us toward the return of Christ with an exuberant expectancy. So what will we do to nurture our relationship with Jesus today? Will we surrender ourselves completely to the transforming work of the Spirit? How will we carry the Word entrusted to us? Will we digest it, memorize it, and allow it to change us? Out of love, will we share what God has entrusted to us with those around us? May we be found faithful in our day. We know that God is faithful. He doesn't change. When we're unfaithful, God in His mercy, He draws us back. May we give ourselves completely to the filling of the Holy Spirit and the study of His Word so that we in our day might not just be called Christian, but be truly Christian, followers of Jesus who carry the light of God within us. So if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to pray for you, for me, that we might live this reality. And then, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I'll also invite you to pray a prayer with me, a prayer of surrender. There's nothing like being a follower of Jesus. So first, a prayer for all of us. Father, I just thank you for your goodness to us. I thank you that while we were yet sinners, you drew us to yourself and you have invited us to know you, to be your children, to follow Jesus, to experience freedom from guilt and the removal of shame and our fears dispelled and an inexpressible joy in the Spirit. Thank you for entrusting your word to us. Father, may we pour over your word. May we digest it. May it uh, just uh, become a part of who we are. May it change the way that we think, the way that we see you, the way that we see ourselves, the way that we see the world around us. And may we surrender ourselves fully to the transforming work of your Spirit every day. And may we pass on to others what we have received. May we not hoard, Lord, these wonderful gifts from you. May we be generous and share with joy, with humility, with grace, with love. And now a prayer for those of you who may not have surrendered your lives to Jesus. If you want to do that today, then just pray with me. Father, I thank you for sending Jesus, your son, to take my sin upon himself. 
I thank you that in you, Jesus, there's forgiveness for my sin and that I can receive the gift of eternal life. Jesus, there's so much that I don't understand about you, about myself, about life, but I believe that you have the gift of life for me. I believe that you are the way, that you are the truth, and that you are the life. And so I choose to follow you. I turn from my independent way. I turn from living a life far from you, and I turn to you and say, Lord, come be a part of my life. Enter my life by your Spirit. I want to follow you. Make me like yourself. Fill me with your Spirit. I thank you for your goodness, your grace to me. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you prayed that prayer, uh, I really encourage you to talk to a friend, uh, a family member who follows Jesus. Share that with them, that you prayed that prayer and you want to follow Jesus. Or you can connect with us here at Willingdon. You can uh, click that I commit myself to Jesus button on your screen, and we would love to encourage you in your journey. And so to all of you, may God bless you today and throughout the coming week.